ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. All right, soy boys, <laughs> listen up and, and, and welcome. Welcome to the Obscurantist world of, of alt-right online diet. This is a serious thing uh, and according to the orthodoxies of, uh, of this this part of the universe, there's a, a cabal of elite globalists, and I think we all know who they are, uh, that are trying to turn us all into bug-eating pod-dwellers consumers of alternative proteins. And the solution to this, the, the culture war remedy, is a hyper-masculine diet of red meat. But yes, you can have the occasional raw egg. Uh, if, if you're confused, well, uh, Jan Dakovitz has agreed uh, to help us make sense of this dizzying dietary fetishes of the, the alt-right. He is a political economist. He's assistant professor of political science in the Department of Social Science and Cultural Studies at the Pratt Institute. Jan, welcome. Thank you for having me. First and very significant question, are you a meat eater? I am not. I am a vegan. <laughs> I, I thought I mean, that that is potentially important context or potentially not. It's simply a personal choice. Uh, well, I, mean, I think it's both. I mean, to the extent that my decision's political, it has nothing to do with the sort of politics that I think we're going to be talking about today. Well, and this is a curious thing because, I mean, we are aware of the great political and, and culture war division uh, in, in our culture. But for these things to become manifest in diet, for diet to be a cipher for political belief, is that a new phenomenon? Is this, is this something you know recent in our history? Well, I think the answer is both yes and no. If you look throughout uh, history, there have been particular moments where particular dietary proclivities are used as the basis for discrimination or in-group, out-group formation, or even the formulation of uh, national myths around what a particular people eat or don't eat or should eat. And so um, in the United States, for instance, ever since uh, the colonization of what is now the United States, the colonization itself was driven by a political economy of ranching, both uh, ranching to claim land and then the political power and control over land of ranchers, which slowly built into the centrality of red meat in the American diet to the point where now uh, eating red meat is basically synonymous with being a, a true American. So I think on the one hand, there are those politics. And on the other hand, diet in general is is so personal. It's one of the few places that I think... People feel that their history, their cultures, but also their personal tastes and personal preferences come together at the moments when they sit down to eat, be it just grabbing something quickly by themselves or sitting down with family. So there's something intensely personal about diet, which I think makes critiques of diet or suggestions that diet be changed or perhaps ideas that diet would be intervened with by the government, for instance, those moments, I think, can politicize diet and by making people defensive about encroachment on their on their habits, right? I'm interested in that moment of history too. I mean, you talk about ranches and the great expansion of beef replacing both indigenous peoples and, and buffaloes and the like across the United States. And of course, in that process, there was great tension between people trying to raise meat and trying to raise vegetables and, and plants. And, and there was there was great hostility between those two groups, even in that, that frontier setting. Well, I mean, yes, yes and no. I, I think that 
to the extent that ranchers had government license to go off and claim land and to the extent that uh, raising cattle was profitable as a way to make a living in a very harsh frontier setting. I think there was little critique at the time of the practice of uh, cattle ranching or meat eating. And then very quickly, uh, the transportation of cattle became central to the geography of the American West with the establishment of frontier towns, the type of places that were policed by Wyatt Earp, which was true, but is also the stuff of cowboy legend. I mean, those types of uh, frontier towns and their bars and brothels were filled with the cowboys who were driving cattle uh, over very long distances to more centralized markets to be slaughtered and then turned into meat and then shipped on to uh, the faraway urban centers. So much of what we now think of as American political economy, including industrialization itself. So when you when you think about economies of scale production on a production line, long distance shipping, so much of that stems from the meat industry, from the centralization mm. of animal slaughter in places like Chicago, the introduction of the so-called disassembly line. So low-skilled workers could sort of chop up uh, animals uh, into standardized cuts in an economies of scale type setting rather than traditional butchery, the advent of refrigerated rail cars, which could then take that meat over extremely long distances to feed the growing populations in urban centers on the East Coast, like Philadelphia and New York and Boston. So, so much of that making of uh, sort of the modern commercial United States has its as many of its roots in the meat industry. It is a, it is such a clever way to actually parse uh, American culture. But, but, but what that says is that we have here a culture in which that that taste for meat, you know, that 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 sense of its importance culturally, as well as in a dietary way, is 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 utterly ingrained. Which then takes us to a present moment where it, it begins to fall into question, uh, where we are confronting a, a range of issues uh, around land use, around the the commodification of animals and in modern agricultural practice and the, the pressures of, of climate change and so forth, all that wrapped up, which puts pressure on this huge consumption of red and other meats. And now that's challenged, that has this, uh, this, this sort of angry reaction uh, from people very wedded to that, that, that ingrained cultural thing. <laughs> there are a few ways to tell this story, but I think Generally speaking, meat-eating in the United States has been not just an orthodoxy, but something that's celebrated. Every corner of the country has its own meat culture. So meat-eating is not just unquestionable, it's celebrated. And then we get to the moment where the average American, depending on which statistics you use, eats between 220 to 260 pounds of meat every year. This is as much beef as pork and increasingly chicken. So in this context, all of a sudden you've got this a number of critiques of this mode of produ producing animals that arise, which, of course, there's the animal rights, animal welfare critique of the commodification of animals and their treatment within these systems of production. But there's also a growing environmental critique, uh, which is that producing animals at such a massive scale creates all kinds of environmental problems from the land use required for uh, grazing a lot of cattle to the land use required for growing all the corn and soy and other inputs that are fed to factory farmed pigs and chickens that are in confined animal um, sort of CAFOs. So, of course, the animals themselves, when they're raised, uh, create their own sets of problems, most notably 
they're fed as much as possible so they can grow as fast as possible. So they defecate a lot. You have to do something with that manure. That manure can leach into groundwater. That manure itself is a source of methane. I suppose the, the elephant in the room are the methane emissions primarily from ruminants. So cows are one of the biggest contributors of the agricultural sector to the total greenhouse gas emissions. And so all of a sudden you have this rising scientific consensus which says, look, we can't keep eating animals at this rate. We can't have this many cows that are belching this much methane in the atmosphere. We can't have so many chickens and pigs kept in tight confinement, which are not only producing methane for their manure, but are treated terribly that require all this monocrop, soy and corn and so on and so forth. And so meat becomes problematized. It starts being critiqued. No one's saying, I mean, some people are saying, the vegans are saying we should stop eating meat. But I guess meat is in the crosshairs of uh, sort of scientific and cultural critique for the first time. And that creates a defensive reaction. And so the article that I wrote in the New Republic is is about that and about how that defensiveness turns into not just the defensiveness of someone at the dinner table saying, oh, no, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be vegan. I want to eat my steak, but becomes a sort of front in this wide ranging culture war. And and that culture war, you know, it, you 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 adopt all sorts of badges as a participant in that in that in that process, and as you say, meat eating of meat becomes one of them, and and, and it, it it's proselytized. Not only is it defended, but it it is actively aggressively asserted as 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 a birthright, as a thing that we must we should do. Yeah, absolutely, and this happens in in two ways. First, there's the the mainstream, I suppose, less terminally online conspiratorial sense, which is that defending meat becomes an easy way of scoring political points. So, for instance, in recent American history, when the Green New Deal idea was floated, part of the early drafts of the Green New Deal um, proposal just talked about reducing emissions from agriculture. And so right away, you've got American lawmakers who are eating burgers in D.C. just to sort of show that they'll have nothing to do with any attack on agriculture. Donald Trump himself says that part of what the Green New Deal is, is an attempt to get rid of cows. And so you've got, let's say, mainstream politicians already playing up this sort of angle of defending meat and suggesting that the left wing or the people who, you know, listen to the latest climate science want to take away burgers, which, which is already, which is, it's both comical and predictable. But this gets ratcheted up exponentially once it finds its way into the sort of realm of online provocateurs and online culture warriors. And what happens there is you've got, I mean, I don't know to what extent you want to talk about particular people or entities, and if you just want to talk about the general phenomenon. Well, I, I wonder if we, could, if we could start with, say, Jordan Peterson, who's almost the respectable fringe of this, and, and then perhaps we could work our way up to Bronze, bronze Age Pervert, <laughs> if yes. that gives you some parameters. Yes. <laughs> Right. So with someone like Jordan Peterson, who has famously embraced a carnivore diet, so eating uh, almost exclusively meat. And he I mean, he's not he's neither the first nor the only one. This embrace of carnivory that's linked to be an athletic performance or linked to notions of masculinity or what have you. But by the time it gets filtered through to Jordan Peterson, it starts becoming something of a marker of cultural identity. The fundamental premise of 
involving anything in a culture war isn't dealing with a material issue just as itself. So I don't think Jordan Peterson is reading the latest climate science or even intervening in debates about methane reduction from cows. What he's doing is he's treating the material problem of the environmental issues caused by animal agriculture and seeing it as a surrogate for this larger clash between irreconcilable worldviews, you know. So all of a sudden eating meat becomes this marker of real men who aren't effeminized, you know, who aren't soy boys, who aren't living life in a sort of more degenerate or what have you way. And once once something gets pulled into this culture war mill and it sticks, then it becomes a marker of of in-group belonging within the groups that embrace it. So all of a sudden, eating meat becomes a marker of a certain vision of masculinity, a certain vision of political adherence. And so in a sense, something that was personal and not politicized goes through the cycle of being repoliticized in a particular way in the context of the culture war. So much of this, too, is, yes, it's political, but the way in which the culture war works uh, is to make the political emotive. And and you use the fine example of of how this was a realization that came not as as politically but effectively to Gwyneth Paltrow as <laughs> the, the goop model is is about this uh, sort of intrusion of of emotion into the entrepreneurial culture and culture warriors have embraced this 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 goop model and repackaged it <laughs> into the the alt right matosphere. It's <laughs> it's, it's yeah, a deaf yeah. I mean, so. It- <laughs> It's funny, but I think the way it works is like this. The idea of lifestyle and shaping a lifestyle and selling a people a vision of a lifestyle, especially where that lifestyle represents belonging to a particular in-group, is a tried, trusted, and true way of selling people both ideas and products. And so in Gwyneth Paltrow's world, there's a you can create a wellness empire of just mostly just made-up nonsense, right, that is far removed from science far removed from people what people actually want but you're selling them a certain lifestyle you're selling them a promise that they're going to live better be better people be empowered be self-actualized and so on and so forth and in their own way the you know the jordan petersons and the carnivore diet folks are doing something quite similar just repackaging for the for what we term the sort of alt-right manosphere and jordan peterson obviously monetizes what he does he's not out there altruistically peddling this information or telling people to eat meat but then once you get to for instance people like mike cernovich who is a sort of right right wing provocateur and an online personality he's part owner of a dietary supplement company and this is the person who tweeted at the economist the economist ran a completely anodyne story about the link between cattle and methane and he responded that eat bugs live in a pod is not a meme it's their real agenda so this is where this leads this goes from the science says we should probably eat less meat to mainstream politicians saying, well, no, we should actually double down on meat because it's what real Americans do and the real American farmers grow meat and we're not going to have these leftists telling us what to eat. That turns into, well, actually real men and real right-wing men eat meat and should eat meat as part of their personalities. And that then turns into quite ridiculous conspiracy theories, such as the idea that uh, some global cabal of elites, perhaps the World Economic Forum, perhaps Bill Gates, perhaps who knows who else, wants people to 
not just not eat meat and doesn't just want to take away cows, as Donald Trump suggested, but wants them to eat bugs, which, of course, goes to the idea that has been peddled by a very small amount of entrepreneurs that perhaps we should introduce things like cricket flour into our diets, which is perhaps a more sustainable source of protein than things like cattle. But but as you right, point out, then, the, the most likely use of that alternative protein is in feeding animals. <laughs> so it's Yeah, it's... <laughs> pr- precisely, right? So no one's actually, A, I don't see the average American consumer or Australian consumer for that matter, uh, gobbling down on cricket flour and especially not replacing their steaks and ribs and hamburgers with things made of cricket flour. I actually think it's much more likely that they'll replace them with something like the Impossible Burger. But the reason I brought up Cernovich and I brought this all up is because Cernovich himself also peddles dietary supplements through the company Gorilla Mind. So similarly, Alex Jones, the uh, Infowar host who actually peddles in his taunt of soy boys calling, you know, left-wing, effeminate, quote-unquote, woke men soy boys, also does a brisk business in supplements and skincare products. So this is very much the goop model. Like, you can't tell me this isn't just Gwyneth Paltrow for right-wing men who are terminally online. I mean, the, the, the culture war is a, is a many-faceted thing, and at, at, at its fundamental level, though, it is it is about money. Um, Bronze Age pervert. I'm I'm dying to hear more of this person. So Bronze Age pervert. So some people think they know who he is, but let's skip the identity because he became known uh, as a sort of pseudonymous writer online, and he's the author of something called. The Bronze Age Mindset, which is basically this bizarre uh, self-published screed. It's hard to tell what what's serious, what's not serious, what's a spoof of almost itself. But it centers on this idea of how how to become a completely free, uh, self-actualized man. So it's sort of this Nietzschean, ubermensch type idea. And so, of course, this is a, a rejection of modernity um, as we understand it. It's a rejection of liberalism as we understand it. So it's basically a call for going back to a time when men were men and men ate meat and men weren't sort of corrupted by modernity. So, I mean, and but this, this thing has gained a cult following. It's been written about quite seriously in media across the political spectrum. It's gotten a huge following on the right. And, and the dietary part of Bronze Age pervert is specifically this idea that one of the biggest problems of, uh, I think, what he calls the garbage of modernity is the food that's eaten. So food that's in any way processed or food that's basically not meat is not masculine and is sort of corrupted food. So there's very much a notion of purity and that embracing purity, purity of the self, purity of masculinity is directly tied to embracing a purity in diet. There's this other character who does something vaguely similar called the Raw Egg Nationalist, who also has this anonymous, another anonymous best-selling author, but who was featured in Tucker Carlson's film, The End of Men, who also, uh, similarly to Bronze Age Pervert, links the consumption of animal products with this sort of back-to-the-land nationalism, a return to real, uncorrupted masculinity, to traditional moral values. And so, so there's this sort of link being made in these spaces between a rejection of modernity, an embrace of traditionalism, traditional morality, traditional masculinity, and an embrace of a meat-centric diet. It is extraordinary too. I mean, you've used the, the word masculinity is inescapable in this conversation. And it, it, this is a... 
uh, a very gendered flank in in the culture war. This is specifically about the sense of maleness. Well, I, I don't know if it's specifically about the sense of maleness. So, for instance, in the Jordan Peterson case, I believe it's, it was his daughter who became uh, an adherent no, that to the is carnivore true now diet. That you mentioned first. it, yes. <laughs> and, but in general, I think that the trope of meat eating for virility and sort of the man as hunter and provider and consumer of the the bounty of his labors in the form of meat is very much tied to certain traditional notions of masculinity. And it's also a message that appeals. I mean, if if we're talking about the messaging, be it the political messaging of someone like um, Ryan Zinke running for Montana House seat and posting a picture on social media of him branding uh, calf with the the caption, let's go branding, which is a nod, of course, to let's go Brandon, which is the anti-Joe Biden rallying cry. With a, with a quite, I mean, that, a quite that's, terrified that, animal that, as an accomplice. Yeah, exactly. Which is calling out to a certain, I mean, this is a specific form of messaging. Like you're saying, you're appealing to a certain cowboy, real man voter. But by the time that makes it to, uh, you know, the terrible place that is the internet, there are corners of the internet that are very much populated by men, men looking for direction or, you know, just lost boys who are online. And by the time you get to them, then you can start linking meat eating with with basically anything you tell them, right? So real men eat meat. They're not part of what I believe a rag nationalist calls soy globalism. The Bronze Age pervert calls himself an anti-xenoestrogen crusader. So you just start saying this nonsense, but you tie it to this very personal thing, which is eating. You reinforce what people are probably already doing, which is eating meat. You tell them to eat more meat because in eating more meat, they're performing the sort of opposition to all that is bad in the world. You know, modernity, poor morals, the loss of real men in the world, and so on and so forth. And I think it's a pretty easy sell. Meanwhile, uh, (laughs) the contrasting reality of which is that cows continue to fart and the uh, the earth continues to warm, which is perhaps the, the inescapable thing which will capture all of this in the end. Well, I mean, I think I think what's what's ironic, the sort of cruel irony here, is that there's nothing whatsoever rebellious about meat eating. Meat eating is the absolute orthodoxy. So first off, you're framing as iconoclasm and resistance something Mm, that's mm. already completely standard. Second off, the idea that you're challenging the interests of big business or modernity or capitalism or globalism or what have you with meat eating is also exactly backwards because the biggest beneficiaries of a carnivore diet are the large agribusinesses that produce, you know, upwards of 99% of the meat that's eaten in the United States. So it's music to the ears of the extremely rich and, yes, globalist capitalists who run big meat companies. So those are the two cruel ironies. But wait, but but the, the third, the sort of third cruel irony here is that there's, yes emissions uh, from animal agriculture do contribute to global warming and to a lot more uh, immediate and tangible effects. So for instance, in the United States, you've got the mighty Colorado River, which runs through a number of states, provides water to a number of large cities, including notably Phoenix. And the Colorado River is at historical lows. Yes, in part that has to do with drought, in part it has to do with anthropogenic climate change, but in large part it has to do with withdrawals 
the majority of which go to growing alfalfa. Humans don't eat alfalfa. Cows eat alfalfa. So the Colorado River is being run dry to grow alfalfa, which is fed to cows in the United States or historically sold to feed cows in other countries. So the Colorado, the sort of like beautiful and monumental waterway of the American West is being run dry because of cows. So the idea that we're going to protect the real United States by eating more meat is precisely false. If you, I mean, if you want to protect the Colorado River, you, presumably you'd want to eat less meat. That would be a far more uh, patriotic thing to do as a real American. We're risk, riskily here, I think, uh, inviting the category error of trying to dismantle uh, culture war tropes with logic, which... <laughs> As we know, Jan is is a fool's errand. Yeah, which, 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 well, no, which, which is a fool's errand. But I, I think it's important to point out the numerous contradictions, and, indeed, and inconsistencies and sort of cruel ironies involved here, right? Because I mean, if you were if you were to describe this to someone who's not sort of not at all involved in these debates, who's not online too much, it would make no sense. It's a nonsensical position. But once this goes through the culture <laughs> war and political war filter, you know, here we are. Yeah, and thank you. Here, here we are indeed, and um, eloquently explained. We're very, very much grateful for that. Uh, yeah, uh, my pleasure. Yeah, Jan Dirkwitz uh, is a political economist. That he is referred there to an article that she co-authored uh, for the New Republic titled "Why Right Wingers Are So Afraid of Men Eating Vegetables." Uh, we will place a link to that on the, the Blueprint page at the, the RN website. Uh, Jan is an assistant professor of political science in the Department of Social Science and Cultural Studies at the Pratt Institute. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 